We are continuing our short series on the Psalms this morning. And we want to begin reading at verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. May God bless the reading of His Word. As we begin, we want to ask the question, who is this psalm talking about? Now, at one level, if you are at all familiar with the Bible, uh, or if you've simply looked at the subtitle of our sermon series on the note page, uh, it'll become pretty obvious who this psalm is about. Uh, It's about Christ. But I don't want you to just know that theologically. Uh, That is to say, I don't want you to know that because uh, you know a greater uh, picture of the Bible storyline. I also want you to be able to see that in this passage exegetically. That is through an exegesis or an interpretation of the text. That's all the word exegesis means, interpretation. And so that's a great word you can use to impress your friends this week. Uh, But my point is this, don't just bring theological ideas you have to the text when you read the Bible and expect to find them there. Uh, Don't assume you already know what the passage says. It's important that you read it fresh, that you think through it, that you see what this text is saying and how it adds to our understanding of the Bible. And I say that all today because this text may take a little more brain power in understanding than is usual, but that is normal, but it's worth it. Because this text, Psalm 110, is one of the most important texts in all of the Bible. Why would I say that? I say it because it is uh, the, the, the one passage in the Old Testament that is most frequently quoted in the New. So where, did, where does Jesus, where do the apostles, where do they quote from the most in the Old Testament? It is this psalm, Psalm 110. And so they understood that this is an important passage that helps unite our Bible between Old and New Testament. It brings it together and helps us understand the work and the will of God. And ultimately, this text is a text about the Messiah, about Jesus Christ himself. And so we, if we understand it, that means we'll better understand him. And if we better understand Him, then we will better love Him. And if we better love Him, we will better obey and worship Him. And so for those reasons this morning, we want to drink deeply from the well of God's Word here. We want to engage our minds and seek to understand how this psalm points us forward to and exalts the person and work of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And essentially what we see are three things that we can draw out of this. uh, Three movements within the psalm itself. And first we have the enthronement of the Messiah. The enthronement of the Messiah. One of the things that makes this psalm so unique is that it, it, it differs from so many of the other ones and that it does not describe directly the experience of the author. 
As we have talked about the Psalms before, as we have seen very often, the Psalms come as an expression of one of God's people going through some situation, having some experience, often driven by either uh, delight or disaster, showing uh, their, their calling out to God and their confidence that He will come and help them. But, but there's nothing like that here. The psalm does not describe in that sense one person's experience, but rather it is a declaration of what God is about to do. It is called an oracle to God's people from God himself through the writer of this psalm. He is making a pronouncement about God from God. But the question is this, who is the one making the pronouncement? Who is writing this psalm, giving us this oracle from God? At first glance, it seems simple enough. If you look at your Bible under the heading where it says Psalm 110, you may have uh, some kind of bolded subheading that the, the editors of your particular Bible are giving you to help you know what the psalm is about. But under 110 or right next to it, you'll find in a slightly different kind of typeface something that says a psalm of David or something like that. This superscription uh, that tells us Who wrote the psalm? Now some, though, are going to say, yeah, but David didn't write it. This is a psalm of David, but David didn't write it because those are additions to the text. They come late. It's just traditional. It's not trustworthy. And they particularly are wanting to say this about this psalm because if David really wrote this, verse 1 becomes a bit confusing for us at first. But here's the thing. In every edition of the Old Testament we have, from, from, the, from the earliest to the latest, the oldest copies, that superscription is always there. It just won't go away. It always says, a Psalm of David, a Psalm of David, a Psalm of David. And so that helps us to say, you know, this is probably pretty old and it's probably pretty reliable. But if you're not convinced on that ground, then perhaps this will make it easy for you to accept that David is the author. And that is, by this fact, Jesus believed. David was the author. He says, David wrote this psalm. And if Jesus believed it, why shouldn't we, right? You remember Mark chapter 12? There was apparently this dispute about who the Messiah was. And, and Mark tells us, as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribe say that the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David? David himself says, in the Holy, or David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus says David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And of course, we're told, though, the Pharisees and the religious leaders were frustrated. The great crowd heard him gladly. Now notice what Jesus does. He says, David declared in the Holy Spirit, and then he quotes from verse 1 of Psalm 110. He says, David wrote this psalm. But notice what else Jesus says about the psalm. And here this gets to the confusing part. You see, when, when David was king, there was only one person that was his Lord. The Lord. God Himself, Yahweh, the King, divine King, Lord God Almighty over everything. That's only David's Lord. Everybody else is servants to David because he's the King. He's the most powerful man in Israel. But what does David say in verse 1? The Lord, Yahweh, God, the Lord says to my Lord. That is, God says to my superior, my Lord, my King. Now who is David's Lord? Who is David's King? This is why some people say, well, well, it can't be David writing. It doesn't make any sense. David has no Lord. He has no king besides God. It has to be someone superior to David. Jesus says David wrote this, though. 
So David is writing about someone greater than himself. The people believed rightly that the Messiah, the Christ, would be David's son, but how can the son be greater? Now that seems like an odd question for us, doesn't it? Because typically we think of our children as greater than ourselves. Culturally, uh, that is uh, very much where we're at, but here's a great difference between the culture of today and the culture of the Bible. The culture of the Bible, the kids were not greater, the parents were. The, the adults were greater, and that's totally flipped today. Today, youth are very much exalted above their parents' generation for a couple of reasons. Number one, because often parents, frankly, make too much of their kids. They let them rule the, the roost, as it were, and so give them a false sense of ego and superiority. That, that's not good, but it also then comes from the kids themselves who think, you know, we're, we know everything, and we're smarter and greater, we're on the cutting edge. And, of course, culture itself has embraced this idea. J.I. Packer summarizes it well, that culture believes the newer is the truer, only what is recent is decent. Every shift of ground is a step forward, and the latest word must be hailed as the last word on the subject. Well, frankly, I know that's not true because I can remember being in junior high and high school and college and seminary, and about every three years, eggs are either really good for you or really bad for you. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, it's high cholesterol. Forget it. Don't eat it. Don't eat it. And it's like, no, no, no. Protein. Good. It's good cholesterol. Eat it. Then it's back to no. And back to you. Well, the newer is cannot always be the truer. Okay? Somebody's wrong there. And they're getting it wrong repeatedly. But nevertheless, we, we, we do like to generally exalt youth and what's new. And the biblical culture is the opposite of that. That's certainly not what we see in the Bible. From the biblical perspective, I'm greater than my kids are. And my father is greater than me. And my grandfather is greater than all of us. If we lived in the biblical times, we would not get impatient with our uh, elderly when they are slow. We would not ignore them when we have something to say, when they have something to say. We would listen to them. And frankly, that's just not in the biblical culture. We see that in other cultures today, especially some African cultures, some Eastern cultures. In fact, one time I, caught, I got caught right in the middle of this thing. Uh, we were invited in seminary over to uh, a friend's house for dinner, a Korean friend. He said, we're going to fix you some authentic Korean food. And, you know, I, I was game, you know. Uh, so, so we went over there, and they were finishing up a Bible study uh, with some other uh, Korean students and friends and things. And after, as we were transitioning to dinner, there was an elderly gentleman there, uh, at least in his 70s, who he was telling me uh, his body had been just completely riddled with cancer, and God was in the process of healing him. He was almost completely cancer-free. And to show that God had healed him, he said, I want you to arm wrestle me and let me show you how strong I am. Now understand, all this is going on in Korean through a translator. And I'm going like, what? What have I got myself into here? And, and it becomes very quickly an impossible situation. He says, come on, I want to show you how God healed me. Well, who am I going to say no to seeing how God healed this guy? But the minute I put my hand on him, on his hand on the table, I realize it doesn't matter how strong this guy is. He's, he's, an eight, he's in his, probably his 70s or 80s. I'm in my 20s. I'm going to take him down right away. But should I have done that? No, I should not have done that. He, he, is, he is the superior in that culture. He is my elder. He is my honored and respected. If I were to just bang, it's done. You won a round two. Uh, that would have been horrible for him. He would have lost face. It would have been disgraceful. I would have been looked at as a complete punk. And so I'm stuck. Like, what, what do I do? You know, so I, you know, I, I, you know, frankly, with a little bit of pride, I didn't want to lose either. So it was a little like, what? So we, we left it at a tie, and both of us were able to save face. Now, well, why do I tell you that, that story? I tell you to say, David is completely flipping culture on its head in that sentence. 
It's why people say, well, well, could David really have wrote that? Jesus said he did, so we, so we believe it. The superscription, old and, tr- and reliable, says he did. But it is so mind-boggling what he is saying. He is saying that the one who is to come, the Messiah, the one who is going to be my son, he will not just be my son, he will be my Lord. He will be my superior. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In the Messiah, here is a king like David, but here is a king who is not like David. He doesn't simply reign as God's anointed. He reigns from heaven itself at God's right hand. And this is how the psalm begins, this oracle of God through David to the Messiah, telling him, sit at my right hand. It is a picture of the enthronement of the Messiah, of him, as it were, stepping up to the throne for the first time and being installed as the king of all things, ruling from heaven forever. And David goes on to tell us what the reign of this king will look like. So we don't just see the enthronement of the Messiah. We secondly see the reign of the Messiah, the reign of the Messiah. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now this verse alone is picked up in several places in the New Testament by the authors of the New Testament and it is applied directly to Jesus' life and ministry. And they are doing that to show us the fullness of what this means. That Christ is sitting at the right hand of God reigning until all of his enemies are made his footstool. So let me just... Let me just give you a flavor of this. In Acts 5, uh, this psalm is quoted to show that Jesus was raised from the dead and exalted to the right hand of God. Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Stop preaching Jesus, they were told. And they said, sorry, we we can't do it. When it comes to this, we've got to obey God, who said, preach Jesus. Why? Because the God of our fathers raised this Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. A couple chapters previous in Acts chapter 2, Peter tells his fellow Jews of the day of Pentecost why they should trust in Jesus. And in part, he says, because Jesus is greater than David. David died and stayed dead. You can go and find his grave, Peter says. But Jesus died and came back to life. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, him whom you crucified. So Jesus is greater than David. Hebrews says, yeah, he's greater than David. He's also greater than the angels in chapter 1. After making purifications for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He goes on to say, And to which of the angels has God ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Angels are great. They're powerful. They they minister to us. But Christ is better. Then Hebrews picks up the language again in chapter 10 and he says, Jesus stands in contrast to the other priests because they they never sit down. They're always standing, offering again and again and again sacrifices for the people. But Jesus offers a sacrifice once and sits down. 
Every priest, Hebrews says, stands daily to service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so we come to Romans chapter 8, and Paul says, Who then, in light of all of this, now he's not got all these texts in his mind, but he's got the theology there. And he says, in, all, in light of all this, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. So because Jesus is greater than David, because he is greater than angels, he is the one mediator between God and humanity who gave his life as a sacrifice but was raised again and exalted as king at the right hand of God. Because of all of these things, Paul says, Jesus is able to serve as our intercessor forever. When you go before God with a need, when you go before God asking for forgiveness, Christ is there interceding on our behalf, saying, He is my brother. He is my sister. Father, He is your son. Grant that request. This is the Messiah, the eternal king who reigns at the right hand of God. But David goes on to describe that reign in even more detail. Verses 2 and 3. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. You know, just this past Friday, uh, we were uh, reading with the kids during our family devotional time about a man named John Newton. Many of you will know he wrote Amazing Grace. And in the course of that, that story, talking about really his childhood and where he came from in order to be the man that he was, when he was a teenager, I think 16, he was press-ganged into service in the Navy. Do you know what that means? If you're pressed into service back then, it meant it was at least one man, maybe a group of men, who may or may not have had clubs, who would literally, either conscious or unconscious, drag you into service on a Navy ship. So you may be coming out of the bar a little tipsy, and the next thing you know, there is a blackjack on the back of your head. The lights go out, and you wake up, and you are at sea. You're going to serve in His Majesty's Navy. And you can get one of two things. You either jump overboard and kill yourself, or we'll beat you into submission and serve in this Navy. That's not willing service. You know what I'm saying? It's not a volunteer Navy at that point. It is, you're going to serve. And that's what happened to Newton. But notice how different it is with Messiah's people. David says, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power, in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Messiah's people, you see, are so transformed by God that they willingly serve their king. God not only calls them into service, into being his people, gathers them, but he does so giving them holiness. And he changes their hearts so that they don't, they're not forced to serve. They willingly serve their master. Pulling back from the rest of the Bible, we call this regeneration, conversion, and justification. Though we are dead in our sin, God gives us spiritual life, opening our eyes to the truth of the gospel that we might believe and willingly trust in Christ as our Savior and Lord. And when we do, God justifies us. That is, he takes the righteousness of Christ and declares it to be ours legally before himself. And that's really what these verses are describing. The last part of verse 3 is a little hard to translate. Uh, different translations, English translations are going to have all kinds of things. I think, though, that David is not looking back to the Messiah. I think he's continuing to look at this people. 
an amazing army of the young rising up fresh like the morning dew, ready to do the will of their master. And then verse 5 continues the description. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, He will lift up His head. Commentator Derek Kigner is right when he says, The enthronement of verse 1 is not the end of the matter, but a prelude to world domination. You see, now that he has been enthroned, the Lord God and his Messiah act as one. And the result is, Messiah conquers everything. He conquers everything. From the least to the greatest, the mighty chiefs over the earth, they will be submissive to Christ the King. Thus, though he is ruling from heaven, his rule is not just a heavenly rule. It has earthly consequences. It's not just an eternal reign. It is a victorious reign. Messiah will conquer his enemies. So what are his enemies? It's those who sin. It's those who rebel against God the Father, who say, I don't want you to be God. I want to be God. I'm going to decide how to live my life. Those are the enemies that he will one day conquer. And when we get to the New Testament, this is the very thing that we see happening. John the Apostle tells us in Revelation 19 as he has this amazing vision of the end of all things. He says, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And sitting on it is is one who is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written on it that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dripped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That, my friends, is a sobering reality. You see, we have lots of people today who, who like Jesus. They are fans of Jesus. But it is not this Jesus that they like. It is a Jesus of their own imagination. Well, we were sitting in the hospital uh, waiting for Ellie to be born. You know, you know, frankly, I thought, you know, maybe we should get cable. And I found out there's nothing on cable. I mean, there's nothing. I mean, we're flipping 70 channels and there's nothing on. So I'm like watching the news station for like two hours at one time, watching all these things scroll. And there was this... I mean, you know, for, uh, what's, what's the most mild thing I can say? Irreverent preacher that got up and offered this prayer at the NASCAR race. I'm sure some of you saw this. It was this homage, to, apparently, to this movie, Talladega Nights. And in the, in the context of that movie, a driver prays to, in the, to baby Jesus. And someone says, you know, he grew up. And apparently he says, well, I, I, you know, baby Jesus is the one I like the best. Well, you know. First of all, I don't think that's reflecting highly on Christianity, so I'm not sure I would, I would you know, necessarily watch that movie and laugh at it. But here's the, here's the sad thing. That's true. Many people who claim to be Christians, just they pick a version of Jesus they like, you know, 2.0 or 3.1. Well, try Revelation 19.0, okay? I mean, that's, that's the final vision of Christ that is coming. He's a man who is coming as the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, and no one will survive His wrath. His robe is dripped in blood. The word of God is firing out of his mouth, destroying his enemies. He is the conquering king. He is the triumphant, victorious Messiah. Because God is on his side. And who is he going to conquer? Sinners. Rebels. And guess what? That's us. We are sinners. 
We are rebels in need of forgiveness. We are in need of parley and mercy from this conquering king. And guess what? We can have it. We can have it. There is hope for those who would be conquered. That's because Messiah is not just a conquering king. He is not just the reigning Lord over all things. He is also a merciful high priest. And this is the last thing that we want to see this morning, the intercession of the Messiah. We saw his enthronement, we saw his reign, and now we want to see the intercession of the Messiah. And here I just want to warn you, here is where you're going to have to lock in and stay close with your thinking caps because I'm going to go fast, but it is heady waters in which we are about to enter, okay? Verse 4 is actually the second oracle. Verse 1 is the first, verse 4 is the second, and yet it kind of interrupts, it seems, the, the flow of thought because he's talking all about this king, verses 1, 2, 3, 5, 6, 7, and suddenly in 4 there's this thing about priests. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, Messiah, you, my Lord, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, what in the world is he talking about? Who is Melchizedek? What does it have to do with the Messiah? Even if you know your Old Testament, this seems out of place. Why? Because according to the law of Israel, a king can never be a priest, and a priest can never become a king. You did not mix the two together. You had a king, and you had the priest, and they were separate. In fact, the very first king... Uh, as it were, the false start of kingship in Israel, King Saul was booted for this very thing. He tried to mix these two roles together, and God said, I laid this down in my law, you weren't to do this, now you're done, you're out of here. And yet here is David looking forward in time, telling of a Messiah who will do this very thing. He will be both king and priest, like this man named Melchizedek. Now again, who in the world is that? Why is he so important? I mean, clearly he must be a big guy in the Old Testament, right? We must read about him a lot. No. Here's the thing. He only shows up in one other place before this in the whole Bible, in Genesis chapter 14. That's it. One place. And yet in this amazing psalm about Christ, David throws this thing right in here and says, you're not just a king, you are a priest like Melchizedek. So where is David getting this idea about a king-priest, about this Melchizedek? Well, you read the commentaries and there's, there's, there's lots of things. Some people say David didn't know what he was writing about. I mean, you read the end of Daniel and, and God says, record this vision. So he writes it all down and at the end he says, hey God, what does all that stuff mean? And you know what God tells Daniel? Don't worry about it. Just shut it up, write it down and send it out because this isn't for you. This is for another generation that's going to bring comfort to. Daniel says, okay. He locks it up and he, and he sends it out. Didn't know what he was writing about. I mean, he had some ideas, but he didn't know what the details were. And some say that's what David is doing here. But I think a far more interesting and a far more convincing explanation comes from a man by the name of D.A. Carson. He says this probably actually came out of David's own devotional life as he is thinking about what he is reading in the text of Scripture and what is going on in his own life. Now here's where we, here's where we kick in. Deuteronomy 17 says this, Every king who ascends the throne of Israel must hear the law read to them and write down a personal copy for reading and reflection. In fact, every day they are to read the law so that they will be judging and ruling and reigning not by their own ideas but by God's ideas. And so David would have done this. He would have had this personal copy, these scrolls, and he would have brought them out and every morning he would have laid them open uh, over you know, his coffee or his mochaccino or whatever it was they had back then and he would have been reading and praying and thinking and 
And suddenly, I think, this would have struck him. You see, back in 2 Samuel chapter 2, which you can go over this afternoon, David was officially installed as king over Israel. But here's the thing. He wasn't king over all Israel. He was king in the city of Hebron over only two tribes. Then in chapter 5, seven years later, he comes to Jerusalem, and now he rules over all 12 tribes. He has united Israel as a, under him as a single monarch. Then the next chapter, chapter 6, the tabernacle is moved to Jerusalem, the same place where David is ruling from where his throne is. And in the next chapter, chapter 7, God comes down in a special way and tells David, listen, you are going to be the greatest king Israel ever sees in the near future. In fact, you are going to be so special to me, I'm going to be like a father to you, you are going to be a son, and forever, a son from your line of descent is going to rule over Israel. In fact, one day, the Messiah himself is going to come from your descent. And you can imagine David's mind is just blown about these things. And for the first time, both the king, the first time in all of Israel's history, don't miss this, for the very first time, both the king and the priests are now in the same city. In the same city, the king is ruling on the throne and the priests are offering sacrifices for the people. And now David is reading... He is reading, he hits Genesis 14, and he sees the same thing, only one other time, a thousand years before David came. A thousand years before David ascended to the throne, he read about this man named Melchizedek, who was king and priest in one city. Now, we're not going to read that, but let me just give you the, the Cliff Notes version. In Genesis chapter 14, you have four pagan men, little kind of kings over some you know, large cities, and they gather together their armies, and they say, we're going to make raiding parties, and we're going we're to rob all these cities around us. And, and they succeed. Uh, but the mistake they make is they kidnap Abraham's nephew Lot and his family and his wealth, and they go off with him. And word comes back, and Abraham, who at that point is the most important person, arguably, in, really, in the whole Old Testament, at least in the book of Genesis, Abraham is kind of like the man. Everything f- is leading up to and flowing out of him. And he is God's special man. He is the man that God has said, I will enter into covenant with you, and in you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. I am with you, Abraham. Even when you sin, I am with you. And so Abraham gets together with a couple of other kings. He gets 300 men together, and they go after his nephew to rescue him. And guess what? God is with him, just like he said. They have victory, and they come back with all these spoils of war. And one of the other kings says, here, take your fair share. And Abraham says, no way. And the king's like, what are you talking about? You, you, know, you led in battle. You won. You get this rightful part of what we, have, what we have got of the treasure. And he says, no, because I never want it to be said, a human king has made me great. I only want God to get the glory for making me great. And that's the story. But right in the middle, right in the middle of the story, it's, it's almost like an interruption when you're reading. Suddenly, here's this man, Melchizedek. Abraham and his men are coming back from war, and this man, Melchizedek, comes out, and he lays before them refreshments for Abraham and his 300 men. He greets Abraham, and he blesses them in the name of the Most High God. Who is that? It's the same God that's entered into covenant with Abraham. It's the same God, the Lord God, Yahweh. So here is this man who blessed... And at this point, I mean, it's, it kind of seems obvious because of the flood and how things went out that people would be worshiping God, but you don't know about this man. You don't know about anybody else except for Abraham who knows the Lord. And suddenly, here's this other man, and he's blessing Abraham and providing him with refreshments. And it's, we're told he is a priest of the Most High God in this city of Salem, and thus he makes intercession for Abraham. 
But Melchizedek is not just a priest. He is also a king. His very name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. Melech is the, is the Hebrew name for uh, king, and uh, Kizedek is related to Zadok, which is righteousness. doesn't matter. The whole point is his name means king of righteousness, but he's also a real king over a city named Salem, which means peace. Now, here's the thing. Given what we know from the Bible, given what we know from history and everything else, the city of Salem where Melchizedek reigned as king and served as priest of the Most High God at the same time, is almost certainly the same city that a thousand years later David found himself as king over Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And so, so you can imagine, this is not lost on David as he's reading through this. But this encounter is even more strange because Melchizedek just shows up with no formal introduction. Here is this amazing man, both a king and a priest, and he has no genealogy. Go home and just skim through Genesis today. Anytime anyone important shows up, there is always a genealogy to introduce him. Here's who this man is. Here's where he came from. Not Melchizedek. He just shows up. And you're likely to think, well, then he must not be that important. Yeah, but he is. And we know that because, again, at this point, Abraham is the most important man in the narrative. And while Abraham does not take any of the loot that he rightly deserves from this pagan king he actually pays a tribute to Melchizedek. He honors him as his superior by giving him a tithe, a tenth of all that he has. So Abraham is acknowledging that this man shows up with no genealogy. Apparently you're thinking, who is this guy? Abraham says, Melchizedek is greater than me. It's staggering. It's absolutely staggering. Now Carson says, imagine David reading through Genesis as God commanded him. And he's sitting in Jerusalem. He's looking out on the balcony. He knows he's there as king. He's looking at the tabernacle where the priests are working to offer sacrifices. And the wheels begin to turn in his mind. Here's a man a thousand years before Melchizedek, a man who ruled over the same city David is now ruling from, yet greater than his own forefather Abraham, so greater than David himself, in part because he was able to do what David was forbidden to do, serve as both king and priest together. And David has all this in his mind swirling around as he begins to think about the promises given to him about his own line. The promises of the Messiah who would come and how it would come from his line of descent. That Messiah would be a Davidic king. And what he does, he sees in Melchizedek a picture of that Messiah who is to come. He sees God in his providence giving him an echo, a foreshadowing of this man who is going to be the savior of Israel. A savior who is greater than all others serving as both king and priest together. Melchizedek came a thousand years before David. And David writes Psalm 110 and it's another thousand years before what he envisioned comes to pass in Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews is focused on the person and work of Christ almost exclusively. And he picks up this connection with Hebrews, the author, or with Melchizedek, the author of Hebrews. He says that Melchizedek is the king of righteousness by name and the king of peace by location. He reigns over the city of Salem, which means peace. And Hebrews says Jesus is the king of real righteousness and peace. Like Melchizedek, he who has no genealogy listed. Jesus is the son of God who lives forever and serves forever as priest. They so say, no, wait a minute, we have a genealogy. Yes, but that's just the genealogy of Jesus' adoptive parents. That's not his genealogy. 
Jesus comes from God Himself. He has existed forever. There is no genealogy. There is just God the Son stamped over His life. And so He appears in that sense like Melchizedek, like with no history beyond Him. He has lived, He has died, and now He lives again, never to die again, always ministering as a priest for the people of God. Hebrews 7 explains that a new priesthood was envisioned by David because the old one didn't work. I mean, it was good and right because God ordained it, but ultimately, as we read earlier, it did not provide lasting salvation. Verse 10, or chapter 10 says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Everything that the old priest did was only temporary. It could only hold off the inevitable. It can never bring forgiveness. And now Hebrews says, if you change the priesthood, which is what has just happened in Jesus, you've got to change the law too. Why? Because the law of Israel said, priests can only come from the tribe of Levi. But Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. Therefore, he comes not just as a new priest, but giving a new law as well. And part of that is he serves by an oath. All the other priests were were just chosen to serve. But Jesus serves, we're told, with an oath. He says those who were formerly priests were made such without an oath. But this one, Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Now what does that mean? Why is that important? It means this. Jesus never dies. Jesus will never shrivel up and grow old and be put out to pasture as a priest and some young buck comes in. Jesus not only reigns forever, but he intercedes forever. There is never the need for another. Jesus is always there for you. Hebrews 7 says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession. See, Jesus came as both a better king, but He also comes as the better high priest. The old priests were sinful people just like us and they had to offer a sacrifice for themselves. Jesus didn't do that. He offered one sacrifice for the rest of us because He Himself was pure and holy and righteous. More than that, his own life was only offered once and it provided full and final atonement for sins. He was not just the priest, he was the sacrifice. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And now the path is open for sinners. We see Christ, this conquering King, who's going to wipe out sin and sinners forever, so rebellion will end and all of creation will be restored to the perfection with which God made it. And we we, we cower in fear because we know we're sinful. But Jesus is also the high priest. And he says, I gave up my life that you might be made right with God and not be be wiped out as rebels before him. Last week, a rector in a church in Wales, a minister, was interviewed because in celebration of the King James Bible's 400th anniversary this year, he decided to rip out certain sections and certain pages and burn them and then turn it into a quote-unquote piece of art. When asked why he did this, he said because he found certain ideas and certain concepts and certain stories, particularly in the Old Testament, just something he couldn't stomach. He didn't like that that God of wrath that was there. Now, most of us are not that direct. Most of us are not that intentional. Most Most of us are not that foolish. But implicitly, we come close when we don't read the whole 
of God's word and understand it and believe there is one God behind every single verse, every single page, who is working with one plan that culminates in Jesus Christ. Psalm 110 shows us that if we don't read all of the Bible, even the parts we may not like, even the parts we struggle with, the parts we just don't understand, unless we continue to work at it, we're never going to fully appreciate the personal work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. All of the Old Testament, all of its themes are all taken up and fulfilled in Him. Jesus is not just the King who destroys sin. He is also the priest who saves sinners. In Christ, we have a Savior who is not just the promised King to rule over our lives, who confronts the enemies of God and brings about the fulfillment of God's plans, the one to whom we are to bow down in submission as King of kings and Lord of lords. But He's also our priest. So when we bow down, we don't do so in terror or fear. We do so gladly, willingly, with love. For he is the perfect righteous mediator who brings peace and righteousness to humanity from God. When we see this, when we believe this, we will bow in humble, thankful worship to him. We will love him and we will serve him willingly. We will be Messiah's people as David foresaw. God, we are so thankful for this great truth about who Jesus is. God, trying to have our minds stretched across the pages of the Bible to see this amazing and wonderful work with which you have done, all for us to bring us who are sinners and deserve judgment into a life of fellowship and forgiveness and love with you. God, we stand amazed that we have such a high priest who would offer his own life for us. God, may you help us to understand this. May you help us to see him as the only means of salvation with you. Not that we would ever do something to earn salvation. Not that we would ever try to do something to earn the, the, the sacrifice of Christ. But that we would simply look to Him in faith, believing He is the King Priest who saves His people. We ask all this in His name. Amen.